0: Beyond the Fence Line, a podcast brought to you by the Texas Agricultural Land Trust. Created by landowners for landowners, we're proud to play a role in conserving the Texas legacy of wide open spaces. Welcome to Beyond the Fence Line. I'm your host, Andy James, and today we're tackling a a pressing issue in Texas wildlife and drought. Our special guest today is Thomas Yonke, the Texas State Coordinator for Quail Forever and Pheasants Forever, who happens to also be a longtime friend of mine. Together, we'll try to understand the challenges that wildlife face during drought and discover the innovative strategies used to protect Texas's incredible ecosystems. Thomas, I'd like to welcome you to the podcast today. And if you want to take a minute to tell us a little about yourself.
1: Yeah, good morning. Yaksamash and, and and uh yeah, us this, all that fun stuff, Andy. I was actually thinking about this the other day, and shoot, I guess we've known each other coming up on twelve plus years now. Uh, from good old uh, Solar OS and, and Bri day. So appreciate the opportunity to be here.
0: Yes, sir. Yes, it's been it's been a few years since since we first met, and uh, it's it's interesting that we're both kind of where we are today, and and a lot of that stems back from when we first met each other. So uh, let's yeah. go ahead and dive into this deal today, if you want to. Um, we're going to try to understand the drought, uh, maybe and its effects on wildlife. Uh, so as we kind of jump right in, just how severe is the drought in Texas right now? And and uh, and then maybe we'll talk about some ecological impacts that that drought may, may be causing. Yeah, great
1: great point, Andy. Um, drought is as we all well know, especially this summer, is on a lot of people's minds. Whether you're a a cattleman or woman. Uh, wildlife enthusiast or somebody out there worrying about wildfire right now so it's a it's a hot topic of conversation and and really we're talking about drought and wildlife and and rainfall so many times when we're getting rain it makes most wildlife biologists look like we know what the heck we're talking about same with a rancher same with the you know so many other entities whereas we when if and when not an if but when we don't that's uh, when the good management really shows through on when the environment's stressed. You know, how do those range conditions look? How do those body conditions on livestock and or wildlife look? And, and uh, you know, what can we learn from that? And so many others before me and you have said this, and I'm going to repeat it. The best time to start managing for drought was yesterday. It's It's not when it's dry. It's even when it's raining. You need to be thinking about how can we how can we manage for the future, knowing that drought drought is inevitable, but it's also periodic.
0: Absolutely, it's not something that's that uh, we're going to get away from. It, it's it's going to happen, and probably happen more often than not. Uh, I actually actually looked up some some data this morning off of the U.S. Drought Monitor, and I thought it was pretty interesting that here we are, uh, and it's August fourteenth. We know that that's a dry time of the year. Um, but right now, about 86% of Texas is in some level of drought, um, and about a third of the state, about 35%, is actually considered to be in a severe uh, or, or greater drought. So there's a large portion of the state uh, that, that's pretty dry right now. We're seeing that, especially down through the central part of the state. But, and like I said, that's that's August. That's part of, of life in Texas. Uh, it's going to be hot. It's going to get dry this time of the year, but um, I think. Looking towards management of wildlife, we've got to be able to plan ahead for that. We know it's coming, now let's plan ahead for it and make sure we know how to deal with it. Um, But let's talk about, uh, you know, maybe some of those ecological impacts, some of those are pretty obvious, but um, is there any kind of, as we get deeper into this, that maybe some people don't consider or think about very often?
1: Yeah, well, I I think first of all, let's let's dive into identifying what exactly drought is. And you know, I was doing a little bit of homework trying to make sure I was edu- a little bit more educated on this subject, but drought is a, a relative term. It's a period of of drier than average or drier than normal conditions that may be affecting your water table content, soil moisture, um, natural resource production, et cetera. But it's not a set amount. And as Texas as big as it is, you have to understand that across the state, drought is going to mean different things. In reaches of far west Texas or in the trans their average rainfall in places might be less than 10 inches a year. Whereas on the other side of the state, far east Texas, their average rainfall may be over 50 inches a year. So a drought in far west Texas and a drought in far east Texas are two different things. East Texas still might be getting 40 plus inches of rain, which would be, Torrential flooding in far west Texas, and um, west Texas may be a year get get fifteen inches of rain, and that would still be a beyond severe drought in East Texas. So it's all relative; it's all perspective on what that average is for an area. Another thing to take into consideration is it's not just average annual rainfall; it's the timing and the amount that that rainfall occurs. So, for instance, in the Panhandle this year alone, so much. Um, of weather conditions and wildlife management, et cetera, goes on trends. The last two years have trended towards below average rainfall, and it's been, it's been tough. And we've had, for the most part, whether you're talking deer, you're talking quail, you're talking non-game species, we've likely had some low recruitment or birth rates and then just uh, um, in, individuals making it to a breeding population. And then in the panhandle this year, I mean, dry, dry, dry. Come April, May this year, I mean, they had quite a bit of rain in some place, over 20 inches of rain in less than a week period. And so they had went from uh, feast to famine when it came to water, but then now it's dry again, and conditions are are very, very dry. They haven't had much water. So some of the Playa Lakes are still holding a little bit of water. Most are already dry. Most of the farmers are plowing their crops under. And so it's not just purely the amount of rain, but when and how that comes. Because it's one thing to get 20 inches of the rain, but it's another thing to get 20 inches spread out throughout all year versus happening in a less than a week period. So that's that's, I just wanted to kind of hit on that first, that one, it varies across the state on what that average annual rainfall is. And then two, it's not just about the average annual rainfall, but when and how it comes. And is that an amount that's able to be soaked in, utilized? Is it amount that's purely runoff because our ground can't absorb it or it doesn't have the ability to slow it down? Or is it kind of a, a mix in between and spread out throughout multiple weeks and multiple seasons throughout the year and and it can be best utilized before running into the Gulf.
0: Absolutely, no, I I agree with you on that. And I think we've seen similar uh, type situation here in Central Texas where uh, really the last two years we've had similar amounts of rainfall through the first seven months of the year. Um, But this year, you know, we saw almost all of it occur in a two month period between April and May whereas last year it was just a little bit here and there um, and so we did produce some some veg some good herbaceous vegetation early on there uh, kind of late spring early summer but here over the last three months you know it's been it's been it's been pretty tough well let's uh let's uh talk about some of the challenges uh that, that this creates for wildlife um and, and maybe if you want to talk about um we kind of stay broad or if we get into to maybe some migratory birds upland game bird type, situations yep,
1: absolutely well I, I think that question goes back to you know what are the resources that that wildlife need and so we we like to coin that as habitat and so habitat is that spatial arrangement of food water and cover and now we can we can spend a lot of talking on each of those but we're going to focus on water right now and so different species are going to have different water needs. And water can come in three different forms for wildlife, and and not all species get all three forms. Some specialize in certain ones, but the most common one that people think of is coined as freestanding. That's gonna be the water you see on the surface, Uh, be it in a lake, a river, a creek, a stream, a pond, uh, a guzzler, a man-made catchment device for water, et cetera. But it is freestanding water that some form of wildlife can go drink. Another form of water is going to be that preformed water. and now preformed water is um, includes that the water that animals are able to absorb directly from their their uh, food and, and other things they eat. So the the waters are you know kind of there's moisture in that plant or in that that resource that they're consuming. So that's that's preformed water. And the last one is metabolic water. So metabolic water is when uh, an animal starts digesting, they are actually able to create water or obtain water from cellular respiration and dehydration. So again there's three forms of water, freestanding, metabolic and preformed. And you know there's so much we're learning about wildlife and and really realize there's so much we little know, but these animals have been here, they they've evolved for years and years and years. Now that's not to say they can make it without water because it's very obvious that many, many species do better when there is all forms of water available, especially freestanding. But just because we're in a drought does not mean that it's all doom and gloom. Um, Quail, for instance, especially blue quail or desert quail, they're, they're adapted to living in that Chihuahuan desert or areas that receive, let's say, less than 15 inches of rainfall a year. There's not necessarily a lot of freestanding water. If it's there, will they drink it? Sure. But they are more so adapted to obtaining metabolic and preformed water. Now you mentioned you mentioned migratory birds and um, you know, something that, that hits on both of you in my mind or two weeks away from dove season. And I'll tell you right now, I'm starting to think, you know what what is it that's going to give me the best place to hunt doves? And with it being as dry as it is right now, it's probably going to be a stock tank. With some of the other habitat needs of a dove, and and Lord knows that you know, and I'll I'll gladly accept it, but we're likely to get some kind of weather fronts and some kind of rain events probably the last week of August to screw up whatever patterns we think we can observe from doves, as we as we figure out where we think we might hunt them come come uh, Labor Day weekend. So definitely things to consider. You know what what are those needs of wildlife? Do they require freestanding water? And if so, and we don't naturally have it, are there things we as landowners and, and uh, conservationists can do to provide water? And, and absolutely. But is it is it always a good thing to provide water? And I, I think that's that's something to take into consideration as well, Some in some instances, absolutely. But in other instances, if and when you provide, let's say the one and only drinking source of water for miles around, you have the potential of concentrating a lot of species that may not otherwise be together, and so maybe that increases disease transmission. Maybe that increases your chance of predation. Um, so definitely things to consider. And you know some some ranches, especially out in, in arid places, uh, talking uh, deserts, be it in Texas or out of state, will actually design uh, drinking waters. With grates over the top. so animals with long muzzles, such as such as their their livestock, sheep, etc., can access it. But flat faced animals, such as mountain lions, can't. They wanna they wanna be able to have the water um, accessible for the animals they wanna manage for, but they also wanna deter the animals they don't want there, so they have to move on and stay out of their area. So, so in that case, they were actually using water as
0: their benefit or lack of water to help kind of deter predation. I want to go back and touch on one thing that you kind of just brought up there, but I think this is a good place to talk about it as uh, I think we both have some experience um, with this situation, but let, let's go back and talk about the, the freestanding water and what can we do as managers um, when we don't have that. And one of the things that comes to my mind is uh, wildlife water guzzlers. And I know you got some, some good experience with those um, out in the Trans-Pecos um, out in some bighorn sheep country but i think we also see them and they're becoming may, maybe um, more useful or, or i'm seeing more people utilize them even back in toward the central part of the state um, they come in all various forms and sizes uh, shapes uh, and they really can be pretty simple but yet very very effective uh, opportunities to, to create water sources um, in places where they're not re- re- readily available
1: yes sir so for those who aren't familiar with it, they go by multiple names, but um, again, a guzzler, right? let's just simplify it right now, a water catchment device, where Andy was talking about when him and I were both out at Sol Ross and, and out in the trans it was very common for groups to to purposely build these water catchment devices or guzzlers in remote areas for wildlife, be it bighorn sheep, mule deer, etc., and then those... Um, those would, they come in all kinds of various forms, but the idea is to catch water, to store water, and to have it accessible to wildlife. And then those those different trough styles and the different tank placements gave them a wide array of options. Regardless of where you build waters, I think, or these water catchment devices, and they don't have to be freestanding. You can use existing things, be it your house roof, your shed, et cetera, your, your gutter system and and be able to store that i actually have one out in my pasture right now that i was hoping to be able to track the deer knowing that hey we're i live in coleman county and it's tends to be pretty dry out here and hoping that by tra- having water would you know be one less limiting resource for for the wildlife when when the ponds didn't hold water and so something to take into consideration is is um one what is your ability to catch water to store water and then when you do have a trough do you have the ability for wildlife of all sizes, not just big game, not just birds, but even your your lizards, etc., to easily get in and out of it? Because if wildlife are thirsty, just like us, they're going to find a way to get to it. It's kind of a, you know, especially if they're requiring it and not die. But you don't want to make a trap either where they could fall into a trough and not get out. So it's really important to, one, do your best to keep the water um, if, if it's not at the very top of the rim where where wildlife could potentially uh swim or paddle paddle to the edge and crawl out you give make some kind of ramp be it with rocks be it with sticks be it with with expanded metal etc but have some kind of escape device because you don't want an animal to get in there die and then uh taint your water where it's uh potentially uh toxic or or at least makes other animals sick by there being decaying matter in it. So point points to take into consideration of you know what can get to it and when they can get to it, can can things get out and not get trapped in it. And that doesn't matter where you're at in the state. So just having the ability to keep it clean and then
0: clean it out occasionally. Absolutely. And then I I just want to reiterate, you know, there's some of these water catchment systems that are that are Pretty significant in size, um, you know, forty foot by forty foot, or, or even maybe even bigger. But um, especially in wetter parts of the state, um, some of these systems are are we, you know, maybe, maybe six foot by eight foot, uh, two pieces of, of tin, uh, stacked on top to make a little roof, and and uh, maybe you have a fifty five gallon uh, barrel that you can store your water in. Um, Everything can be gravity fed. They're they're very simple systems and very effective. Um, But depending on where you're at um, and and obviously the amount of rainfall that that you do get, you can adjust the sizes of those facilities and they don't have to be very big. They don't have to be very costly uh, to be beneficial. Let's talk about some other uh, strategies maybe wildlife um, kind of utilize when they do run into drought. Let's discuss how... Uh, maybe various types of species are, are able to adapt, um, change their behaviors, utilize different habitats. Uh, maybe it's changing migration patterns, uh, but, but look, let's maybe dive into a little deeper uh, talk about uh, what some of these strategies might be for wildlife, and then if we have some specific examples um, of maybe how different species are doing that.
1: Absolutely. So I, I think it's really important to to, one, think about a species' needs. And what I mean by that is, you know, we think of seasons calendar-based. We think of spring, summer, fall, winter. But from a species standpoint, we need to think about what are their what are their life cycle needs? And some, some animals are a lot longer-lived or shorter-lived than others. I mean, quail, you might have a couple-year life cycle. Deer, you might have a decade-long life cycle. So it's really gonna depend, but it boils down to there's likely gonna be uh, a breeding season. A nesting or a gestation season, and then I'm going to say a a, a young rearing season. Whether it's chicks, whether it's fawns, uh, you got some kind of season in where there's additional effort and needs to take care of the young. And then there might be a season where they're they're needing to store up reserves, be it body fat, etc., in preparation for winter, or for males. Uh, or for you know birds growing new plumage, or or for animals like deer growing antlers. So there's different needs throughout different times of year. So when when drought occurs, it's not so much what time of calendar season does it occur in, but what life cycle season does it occur in the animal. And so, for instance, with deer, when they they are stressed, be it nutritionally, be it water conditions, et cetera, they've evolved to if they may uh, reabsorb or abort their fetuses. And so that that mother can live because though that sounds harsh, animals have two basic um, thought processes. I have to survive and I have to reproduce. Well, you can't reproduce if you don't survive. And so the in an instance like that, sometimes, whether the young are being developed, or maybe they don't even they don't even breed because they're just not nutritionally fit to do it. That's one of the adaptations is hey, we gotta we gotta survive so we can wait for better conditions to do this again. Other species, such as quail, you know, when, when it's raining, it's it's not uncommon to have multiple successful nests in a season. Conditions are right, they may be laying and hatching eggs in the spring. Then they'll do another one in the in the summer, and then potentially a, a third successful nest in the late summer, early fall. It just really depends. And so it's it's one of those they've evolved to one take advantage of when times are good, but when times are rough, they're going to cut down on the number of uh, young that they rear, or that the amount of antlers they grow, or the amount of uh, resource they do, and and it's it's unfortunate. Yeah, some that's natural selection the things don't make it but when conditions are good they're able to reproduce uh, a higher number to make up for those times that are bad so yes right now with in the last last two years have been have been really dry and you got to ask yourself well was it dry leading up to the breeding season or nesting season was it dry during the winter when were those animals most stressed right now we had a We had a pretty good spring throughout Texas. I'd say April through early June was average, if not above average, throughout a lot of the state. I think a lot of people have been excited when it comes to species such as quail or turkey or possibly even deer saying, hey, I'm hearing quite a few birds or I'm seeing quite a few young, and that's fantastic. They had the, the right amount of rain at the right time. To produce the right needs for those animals to, to successfully put young on the ground. Now it's a matter of, you know, how were things managed leading up to this drought or during this rain event, is there a remaining habitat to get them through these dry times? Do they have the, do they have the cover, be it from brush, be it from grass, et cetera? so they can have those food resources even if it's dried out or they can have that that screening cover from from predators or fr- especially from the sun and they can they can survive these you know 105 plus degree days so a lot goes into it but just know that animals have evolved to survive and they have evolved to reproduce
0: young especially when conditions
1: are suitable
0: those are some great points, uh, Thomas. Let's kind of transition. Um, Let's talk about maybe the role of what uh, conservation organizations can do. Uh, How can uh, folks like Quail Forever, Pheasants Forever, um, Texas Ag Land Trust, and many, many others, what are some things that that are being done and can be done in the future to help mitigate these impacts uh, of drought on wildlife? Well, Andy, you bring up some great points yourself there and and one is
1: there's a lot of there's a lot of players to this and no no one can do it on their own. And so that that power of partnership and especially with Texas being what it is, you know, 95 plus percent privately owned. You got organizations that are looking at it from that the landowner rights and having the abilities to keep these working lands working and also having organizations being real specific how can we best manage for those natural resources that are there and you know come to mind we got nrcs the natural resource conservation service texas parks and wildlife quail forever u.s fish and wildlife service and many many more that you know different folks have kind of their different niches but ultimately we're we're striving for the same goal we want to have we want to have healthy wildlife, healthy, abundant, resilient wildlife populations that can that can you know make it through whatever changes are coming about them. We want to have clean air for not only them but us to uh, utilize. We want to have water. We want to have food and fiber, and we want to we want to do this, especially as our population continues to grow. So we're we're needing to get smarter and smarter about how we about how we manage what we have our resources on our lands so that we can all utilize them and and work together. And so when it comes to, to wildlife, you know, what, what does an organization such as the one I work for do, which is again, quail forever and pheasants forever. They're one in the same, but, but we really work with the landowner and try to figure out, Hey, one, what are your goals? And if it does consist of wildlife and range management and all can working with these natural resources how can we best do that and as we mentioned uh before you know we don't have any control over the weather as much as we'd like to we don't we we don't know we we i wish we had the ability to turn off and on that that uh, that sprinkler system and and lower these temperatures probably 10 20 degrees right now but you know we we don't have control of that but what we do have control over is how we manage our lands. And so we, we first need to realize, Hey, what, what are the goals we have? Is it wildlife? Is it, is it farming? Is it ranching? Whatever the case may be, you know, really sit down and identify what those goals are. And then how can we best look at them from, uh, from kind of what's our game plan moving forward? Not just short-term thinking, but longer-term thinking, five plus years. And knowing that, that management is an active process. You know just as well as I do, Andy, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners know this as well. There's no silver bullet answer. There's no single project then begin to hunt, be it putting out a guzzler, be it planting perennial grasses, be it deferred grazing, be it increased grazing. There's no one time fit all solution. And so we really just need to be active in, in allowing the land to teach us and us being willing to learn what are the needs and also willing to say, hey, we might need to reduce our stocking rate or we might need to harvest more more animals or not harvest quail this year. We might need to, you know, um, maybe it is beneficial to, to supplementally feed or, or do water, whatever the case may be, we need to be uh, learning from the land and we need to um, just be open-minded to saying, hey, it's it, it knows what it needs a whole lot better than we do. And an organization such as ours can can help people identify that, have those conversations, and then on, on top of that, come up with a management plan. And, and if somebody's uh, eligible and interested in some financial assistance opportunities, we can help um, uh, uh, people apply for those, uh, be it state funds, federal funds, or even local community funds.
0: And that's where that's where we come in. Good deal. Well, that's, I, I think that's great. And I, that there's a lot of opportunities out there to help the wildlife and help the landowners. Now, uh, let's kind of uh, kind of build on top of that. What are some ways that we can engage the community? Maybe educate the community. And I'm thinking from that perspective of those that are outside the agriculture or wildlife uh, world, if you want to call it that. Um, what what are some things that we can do to help those people understand what's really going on uh, when, when in terms of wildlife and and the the impacts that are being made by drought and other other natural causes out there? I think so much of it's education, and and um, you know
1: we don't we don't know what we don't know, and until we have a better understanding of it, we're not going to care about it and choose to do something about it. And and water's such a a topic that can tie us all together whether it be for wildlife whether it be for drinking water whether it be for the flowers somebody has in their yard it doesn't matter all life needs water in some form and so knowing that water is is a common theme between everybody and, and we can agree upon hey we need it we need to best utilize best conserve best manage what we have it's it's a powerful it's a powerful link between us it doesn't matter if you're uh, for hunting against it, you're for ranching against it. Live in a city, live in an urban area. We all all need water, and I think it's especially in a in a state like Texas, where we have the majority of people, the majority of our population, majority of our voting individuals living in a very small proportion of our state. It's it's uh, and and Talt and and others would know those statistics better than me, so I'm not going to try to rattle them off. But it, it's really important for people to realize, hey, that that drinking water doesn't come from a water tower. It doesn't come from a faucet. It comes from our reservoirs. It comes from our groundwater, our aquifers. And that water right there is made possible on how we manage our working lands across the state. When that, when that water falls from the sky and it hits that, that soil, that plant, you know, what does it do next? Does it immediately run off? get into our stream system and and make its way down to the gulf does it evaporate does it or does it have a chance to slow down percolate um uh, be utilized by our by our vegetation and by our animals by our wildlife does it have the ability to recharge our aquifers and our our uh, natural swimming holes be it Baumaree or Barton Springs or others you know does it have the ability to to go into that that drinking water resource and so just having that those education events on you know where does our water come from where are those recharge zones where how how is that being impacted by our current management past management and what do we choose to do in the future are all things that we can do no
0: matter where you live in the state absolutely well i want to cover one more topic here before we kind of come to a conclusion but but the the topic i want to discuss next is, is about policy i think we've gone a lot of different directions here but what kind of role um, could policy play into helping us to effectively address these challenges um, that are dealing with drought and wildlife one there's funding for some of these options right for some of these management um, opportunities yeah, yeah. uh there's that, that funding while we don't think about it as an impact directly to you know, on, on uh, drought, but if we can, funding can be put into um, various management opportunities, then we can help improve that habitat so that when we have a drought, those impacts are minimized. Uh, yep. a, a, another one that comes to my mind, uh, right off the bat, is, is just drought response plans, and and we see that on a large scale, but we also see it, at local scales too and and we're dealing with one right here in, in central texas where uh, many of the cities um and communities have gone from a you know from a level one drought plan to a level two or level three drought plan and then they're they're as things become drier and water resources become um impacted at higher levels those cities are putting in drought response plans that ultimately are going to make sure that there's water in the lakes forever so that we've you know we got fish i mean it, things like that um definitely c- come into my mind for sure And maybe that'll spur some some other things that might you might have thought about it absolutely did and i appreciate that yeah
1: any, anytime you're talking to somebody who works for a, a non-government organization or or even an agency you start talking policy it's like well what, what? don't want to get on either side of the fence on this one but you are absolutely correct um, when you, you started talking about different legislation or different funding opportunities, I think the big one, and especially right now coming up, whether people realize it or not is our farm bill. So the farm bill is something that's passed at a national level. So in Washington, DC, that affects our entire country. And though we, it seems like it was, you know, eons ago, we, we need to be reminded of, you know, not just the Dust Bowl of the late 20s, early 30s, and, and how this came about saying, hey, we need to do something before our topsoil blows away. That, that is our bread and butter of our country. Our food and fiber is, is the, the quality of soil we have. And so policy absolutely has the ability to to impact how much funding is directed towards conservation things. Be it a, a benefits of the land, the water recharge, the resiliency of our of our um, vegetation, but also how does that how does that vegetation impact our climate? So many of these things are interrelated. And right now, there's a especially with our current administration, there's a lot of emphasis on climate smart practices, not only what we do uh, now, but what we do in the future. And I don't need to get into the the weeds on that, but just know that that healthy healthy conservation, healthy rangeland management is beneficial in many, many, many aspects, be it for water retention, be it for carbon sequestration, be it for many other things. And so right now with the farm bill coming up, that that is something that gets um, voted on and amended every five years. So right now we're wrapping up our, our 2018 farm bill. And I believe that that comes to an end at the end of this fiscal year, so September, here in about a month. And depending on what decisions are made across the country and voted on in Washington, D.C., that will depict on how there's programs such as CRP or the Conservation Reserve Program and others are funded for the next five years out. And do we do we have national level funding to to put maybe some some um, especially non-productive farmland or rangeland and and put it to the side, so we can have better water retention. We can have better better grass cover, nesting cover, brood rearing cover, thermal uh, cover for for all wildlife. You know, do we have that ability? So yes, policy absolutely comes into place when it comes to conservation. And then, as you mentioned, Andy, those cities having those discussions on, hey, what is their what is their drought management plan? And we know there's we're getting more and more people uh, utilizing uh, a, a resource. I don't want to say necessarily a finite resource, but a resource that's not necessarily increasing. How do we best best manage that? Yes, we may all want to have our green yards and, and our swimming pools and and whatever the case may be, but how do we need to responsibly utilize that resource
0: so we can we can have it to to satisfy all of our needs? I think that's great. Well, uh as we kind of wrap things up, I I just want to uh just express how how thankful I am for being able to get you to to come and and sit here on a podcast with me for for a while and uh I thank you for, for being here and, and take, taking the time out of your day. I know y'all guys are extremely busy um, and out, out doing a lot of good work right now. So uh, thank thanks for being here. And uh, If you have any kind of closing remarks or if you want to share um, any ways to help our listeners, maybe get in touch with y'all or um, look up some of your information if you want to share that with the group.
1: Absolutely. And I, Andy, I greatly appreciate the time and opportunity uh, to be speaking with you today. Always good to catch up and uh, especially right before dove season. So hopefully we'll get a chance to be together this year. Um, you know, I, I tell folks, one, I know it's 100 plus degrees. So likely early in the morning, get outside, go enjoy these natural resources that we're talking about, whether it be on your property or on some kind of public land, go enjoy it. Because the more you enjoy it, the more you're going to have a, an intent to want to do something good for it. And then two is, you know, if you have any questions, just know that there are a lot of great resources, a lot of great resources free to landowners or free to groups that want to learn more um, in in every county across the state. So please go reach out to your local AgriLife Extension or local Texas Parks and Wildlife Biologist or local Natural Resource Conservation Service and see what they have to offer. And, and our team, again, with Quail Forever, we are... We, we currently have team members spread out throughout the state, and we have a growing number. So we we are not based in every county, but we have a growing presence in the state from the panhandle down to deep south Texas. And if you'd like to learn more about our organization, you can go to Texas, spelled out so T-E-X-A-S, TexasQuailForever.org and uh, please feel free to get in contact with me or any of my team members and we'd love to visit with you and and see how we could best help you with your conservation goals and i guess lastly andy i'd like to throw in when you figure out that rain
0: dance please let the rest of us know we'd be happy to join in on you on it well i don't i i'm looking for any help i can get uh i'm sure there's there's a lot of folks out there that that could be would be interested in doing a rain dance if we knew if, if that would make it work um and bring everybody some rain so That's a wrap for today's episode of Beyond the Fence Line. Uh, I just want to give one last thank you to to Thomas Yonke, the Texas State Coordinator for Quail Forever and Pheasants Forever, and and a good friend of mine for shedding light on uh, a fascinating topic of wildlife and drought in Texas. I hope you all enjoyed this episode as much as me. Beyond the Fence Line is brought to you by the Texas Agricultural Land Trust, dedicated to conserving the Texas heritage of agricultural lands wildlife habitats, and natural resources. Find out more at txaglandtrust.org.